Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So the morning of the funeral, I said to the undertakers, open that, because I don't believe he's in there. And if I don't see him, I'm going to go through the rest of my life thinking he's somewhere else in the world. And so um, they did, and it was a private viewing for myself and another person, but one person who I believe was involved in all the murders insisted in staying in too. Nobody would come near the house. They were all threatened and told not to. Everybody, people in the community, were told to stay away from me or they would get the same as John got. People were pulled out of bars, guns put to their head, told to stay away. Deirdre, thank you so much for coming on today's podcast. Uh, your story is going to be very hard to share and it's going to be very hard to hear. John Fennell was your fiancé, he was the father of your sons and he was beaten to death in an INLA feud mm -hmm. in March 1996. Yep. You've been quietly fighting for justice and truth around his murder mm -hmm. and today you want to speak about your concerns surrounding the investigations mm -hmm. and his death by both the Garda and also are you see now disbanded uh, and the PSNI have have taken on those investigations I think before we start we're going to have a lot of people who'll come at you with the uh belief that if you live by the sword you die by the sword yep and that John was a member of an outlawed paramilitary organization he the activity he was involved in was illegal but your point is murder is murder yeah. it's wrong mm -hmm. and it should be investigated because that's Absolutely. the job of the authorities and you do not believe his murder has been properly investigated mm -hmm. can you tell me why well even um going back all those 26 years um the crime scene itself was not properly sealed off in um, the immediate aftermath of the guards finding his body. So from that moment onwards, I was starting to come across um, real apathy from the guards. Uh, I had gone down to speak with them on a number of occasions and was accused of playing games by them when I couldn't answer their questions. And... You know, I was just going down to find information off them and they were looking information off me that I didn't know anything. And um, very quickly, we got an inquest in the October, I'm nearly sure it was. And um, there wasn't really anything come out of that. It was very, very quick um, and open. I think it was an open verdict. It was so many years ago, it's hard to remember. Um I was with multiple solicitors trying at my hardest to find different ways to get information that I felt the only way I could get that was to put in for a compensation claim, even though I was told you're not entitled to it if a person was involved in anything. Though John had never been convicted of being involved in anything. Um, 
basically they were going to say, no, well, screw these services or forces or whoever will say otherwise. So um, even trying to get the autopsy report took 20 odd years. When I phoned the coroner, he told me how dare I contact him and there was absolutely no way. I was getting it, whether I was entitled to it or not, I was not getting it. So um, that took <laughs> over two decades of fighting for. Um, and then eventually, in 2014, um, because the guard the in Ballyshannon or Bundoran, they kept changing who the guards were and who was the chief there and whatever. So, and they were very rude when you would phone, who do you think you are, what are you phoning here for? One woman even laughed hysterically, uh, who was who answered the phone in Ballyshannon Garda Station. So um, it really became a case of feeling very frustrated. And it was then I wrote to, I really can't remember who it was at this stage who I wrote to, but it might have been the Garda Commissioner. Eventually they decided that they would uh, reinvestigate and that that would come through... Monaghan Garda Station, and that was um, John Riley, Sergeant or Detective John Riley then, who was put in charge of the case, and uh, myself and others met with him to try and establish what he was going to do, and he very openly says, look, I have no interest in trying to hide anything or whatever this to me is a clean sweep of this investigation and I thought well that's good that's something I haven't heard of before you know it's about time and then um, we met with him again and the assistant Garda Commissioner and that would have been with Margaret Irwin and Kevin Winters at that meeting and I was told then on leaving that there had been an investigation, very little had come out of it. They couldn't use DNA. That was such everything was such a mess because it hadn't been sealed off, um, and there really was nothing. It was inconclusive at that time. And as on leaving, I was told that I would be sent a report in some shape or form. You know, I wasn't too sure what to expect from them, um, but that never happened. And then twenty eighteen happened to come by and I thought right I'm going to try and find this what's happening with this because in between times you know there was family issues and I contacted John O'Reilly again and he basically told me I wasn't getting a report I wasn't getting anything off him and that was it you're not getting it for anyone who isn't aware of the circumstances of John's death uh, John was a member of the INLA. In fact, he was one of the founding members of the INLA. He was well respected within that movement. And for some reason, a feud developed. And there's been a number of feuds yeah. within the INLA, but this feud that we're speaking about is between 95 and 96. And a number of people were murdered during that feud, including a former leader, Gino Gallagher. Nine-year-old Barbara McAlorum was also murdered, an innocent schoolgirl, and also John. But what sticks out about John's death is, and at the time I'm right in saying, Deirdre, that he was he was basically not at home in Belfast because he was in fear for his life or he'd been warned that his life was in danger. He'd actually travelled to County Donegal, to Bunkrana, to stay there. And, and for whatever reason, whoever was after him or whoever was threatening him, he thought that he'd be safe up there. He went out drinking with a number of individuals connected to the INLA and his life ended that night after he was beat to death with a breathe block, which, I mean, as paramilitary feuds go, it's an unusual way to die. Mm -hmm. it's, it seems like it was a murder that was full of hate. Mm -hmm. There was, I mm -hmm. mean, would you say that the way in which John was murdered was, was it a personal thing more than it was? I would say there was a personal aspect to it considering one of the suspects who is no longer alive 
was involved, um, that it would have been very personal. But at the same time, when um, I eventually got the autopsy report, um, it did state in it that uh, the guards had asked for um, the coroner to uh, look for evidence of torture because of older bruises that were on his body. Um, so that's concerning. That why would they even mention that? Why, why would they be actually asking for what would bring that? What would put that in their heads? Yeah. Even and that's something that then you have to live with. Mm -hmm. you know, was he tortured? But this was torture Previous. in a few days before Previous this. Yeah, Jude. yeah. And I mean, we'll, we'll get into the chronological yeah. way of events, but. Quite obviously, John wasn't at home with you very no. much during that time because of the danger to his life. So you, you know, it's something that you weren't aware of, but you can't rule out either. Yeah. Tell me about John and how he became involved with Diana Lay and what type of person he was. John, um, he was an extremely intelligent person. He was... You know, you countdown would come on and he could do the maths in a, in a second. <laughs> he was the same with the words in English. You know, he was just really, really smart, really astute. Um, he had, had a lot of integrity. It is also a reason of why he was very respected. If anybody who knew John would come up to me, they would say, you know, an absolute gentleman. Uh, you know, there was never a bad word I ever heard anybody say about him, unless, of course, they were, uh, even those who were affiliated with, you know, those who killed him, they still had respect. There was a lot of respect for John. He was born and reared in Ardoin, of 13, well, 12 brothers and sisters, and his mum and dad in a small house. Um, they are a well-respected family. He saw a lot he was 14 when the troubles really started. So he saw a lot going on. He had a lot of his friends, neighbours, acquaintances who were murdered. Um, so he became, like so many others, he became uh, angry. And he started to question what was going on. People were being burnt out of their homes. Where He, he was witnessing all this as a young male. And so it had a deep impact on him. And he, um, like so many, got caught up at that time. As far as I know, it was all, you know, stickies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they would get called, you know. Um, so, and he kind of remained that way with that ideology. Mm -hmm. um, whenever there came a split, whenever the provos and the stickies uh, went both different ways. And he would have gone to classes. I think it would have been dandy close. Trevor Close, who, who he was also murdered, um, who would have taught him a lot about socialism. And uh, so really looking into the background of socialism throughout the world and different types of uh, conflicts that there were. So he was educated. He was very, very well educated and uh, very dedicated and very... He would also have been a bit of a feminist. You know, he was very much for women's rights. He could see beyond what he didn't have tunnel vision. He was very a very wide thinker. He's very strategic and could, you know, good forethought. Good I remember there was, you know, punishment beatings and he was all like, there's no point anymore. There, there there's no point in punishment beatings. It's just futile. You shouldn't be doing it anymore. And that was way before anybody was even talking about the futility of punishment, shootings or beatings. So, um, yeah, he was he, he was very political, but he had come to the end of the road in that activism. He had decided that because of the ceasefire being called, first ceasefire, that that was it. It was time that everybody got round the table. And that uh, his his death was just two years before the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, I'm sure. Would you say that he would have been a supporter of that? Yeah, 
Very much so. Because he was able to see the bigger picture. He was able to see that technology was taken over and that um, people were weary and tired and there was, it just had to start looking at another way of doing that and that was through talking. And in his own words, he did say, um, the INLA do not have the might to take on. The INLA do not have the strength or the numbers to take on the might of the British, the British Army. I was well aware that there was nothing more could be done. You know, it was time to look at a different strategy and that was talking and to be around that table. Did he ever spend any time in prison? He was in um, held, I think, for about six months on the word of a supergrass. And that was whenever he was, you know, about 20 at 29. I can't actually remember. It would have been late 70s, early 80s, wasn't it? The, the supergrass. Yeah. The, the yeah. INLA, yeah. But he, as well, when he was um, about 16, he was young. He was, um, he was in the Young Offender Centre. I think that was for beating up a soldier as a hot-headed young man, mm. but not for anything paramilitary. Yeah. But he never served any sentences as an adult. Yes. He was never convicted of anything. So tell me how you met John. Um, a friend of mine was in a relationship with somebody who knew them. And I went up with her one night to Sunday night to the GAA and met him. And that was that. I went over to live in London for a while and then came back and we just hooked up again. You know, we just kind of got each other. Yeah. Because um, at first I thought, nah, this is just some creep from Ardoin. <laughs> I'm not really into all that. You know, going to the GA on a Sunday night and stuff, I would have been more over in, uh, I was living in a flat over in South Belfast, so you're going to like Salavaries. And uh, I don't know, we just kind of clicked because he, he was different. He, because he did have that, you know, that political outlook, that, that feminism, that, rights for everybody and you know and the struggles that go on and he and he got it he really got it yeah and so you collect were you political Deirdre or was it was republicanism something that was a part of your life I would have been political well I grew up through all the troubles here my um, family come from a, a big republican family my granda was in the IRB um, so there, there was, I even remember as a child being with uh, my mum at all the marches, I remember getting burnt by cigarettes and cigarettes smoking up your nose because you're that mm. small, you're right at hand height. Um, I was at Bobby Sands funeral, uh, I was at um, Joe McDonald's funeral, uh, Tom McElwee's, I went on Black Flag marches, mm. you know, and I was just a kid at the time. So yes, I was brought up with... Um, as a Republican, and I was aware of what the Republican armed struggle was about, and I I did agree with it, and um, so yeah, I very much got where he was coming from, and the bigger picture as well. So you got together, you uh, had your own little family, you had two twin boys, yeah, and that would have been around nineteen ninety five, yeah, and. At that time, issues with the INLA started to build. You know, were you told much of about that from John's perspective or was it something they didn't talk too much about? John didn't talk too much about that side of life and I didn't ask any questions because I simply didn't want to know. You know, I knew John was involved in some shape or form, but I absolutely did not know to what extent. Um, so when all those rumblings were starting, I was clueless. You know, he didn't say anything. If he said anything to me, it was going over my head because I was a new mother, two babies, and my focus in life was completely on them. And, um, you know, there would be meetings. You know, people would come to the house. Well, I didn't know there were meetings. There were visits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Regino. And another guy uh, came into the house and they were in talking in the kitchen. And I just heard John shouting. I'd never heard John shout in my life. And I heard him shouting at the top of his voice. I did not know he was going to call a ceasefire from the dock. 
And what's that in relation to, Deirdre? That was in relation to um, Q Torney, who uh, was in jail at the time with a few others because they got caught with arms. And this was um, in a court in Dublin, it isn't was, that right? Yeah, special criminal court. And unbeknown to me, there had been negotiations going on with Clonard to uh, get a ceasefire going and to have discussions about stuff like that and for Q to come out of jail to be able to continue those discussions. And um, so therefore the ceasefire had been called. But at that stage as well with Q having been in jail, John did say about, you know, taking over, taking over things, but he had decided that he didn't want to. He said, I don't want anything. I, I don't want any more responsibility for him. He was jacking it all in. And so from this statement that was read out in court, a split, which probably already had been there, deepened and there was two different factions of the INLA, basically. One that called themselves the GHQ and then the other. And what happened after that, everybody's read about. A number of members were murdered. Hugh Torney was murdered a few months after John mm -hmm. um, in September 1996. But for you living through this tension... And I'm sure you maybe didn't even realise what was going on because you had two little babies. Yeah. You had two twin boys to look after. You saw John getting obviously angry and upset. What what was it like living in those circumstances, Deirdre? Obviously you didn't believe that any harm would come mm -hmm. to John at that time. Uh, it was it was stressful and it was tense and I didn't know why it was stressful and it was tense. My John was being so distant um, and then why he was having to, you know, leave the house. He would stay at times and then there was times that he, he didn't stay and I wasn't really aware too much of and, or even understand what was going on and I wasn't fully paying attention. Um, but... You know, we did have lots of arguments. We did fall out. We did, uh, you know, because quite simply, he wasn't going to tell me anything. There was the odd time he would say, oh, um, such and such chased me in the car around the streets of the Lower Falls. So I had to ditch the car. And I'm thinking, right, okay. And this isn't all registering with me as, why is such and such chasing him around the streets in a car? Yeah. <laughs> and why is he so agitated? You know, and these would have been other members of the yeah. MLA. These would have been people who I knew. And I'm going, why? So when did it really come to a head, Deirdre? You know, at any point before John decided to go that weekend to Boncrana, what was there, you know, was there something that started to build that week or when did things come to a head, really? Um, things were from December, I would say it was quite, things were getting very tense. Um, and then through January, John really wasn't in the house much. And then Gino was shot dead on the 31st of January. And, um, to me, I still hadn't a clue what was going on. I knew Gino had been shot dead, and you know why was he shot dead? You know I didn't know when was Gino made a leader, and you knew Gino. Yeah, he had been in your house. Yeah, how did you feel when he was shot dead? I was shocked. I was like, oh God, what's going on here? My first thought was loyalists. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was working full time as well at the time, so I'm getting up at five in the morning, getting things ready, getting to babies up, getting them out, getting to work, didn't drive, so public transport. So you're talking my whole time was basically, this is just filtering through. I mean, it was my mum who phoned me and told me at work that Gino had been shot dead. I think they all cottoned on before I did. Um, and I just thought, right, okay. <laughs> I'm not even thinking of the implications. Um, and then after that, John really wasn't staying in the house much. And then the police called and they asked for John. I said he wasn't there and they, says, they asked him to come in. 
and they come in, uh, one of them come in and says, just want to let you know that we've been advised that John's life is in danger and he needs to step up his personal security. I went, right, okay, let him know. And then, um, I was that unusual? I yeah, mean, that well, we had been, we had had a suspect device intercepted in the um mollusk over the years, and you know, different things happening, but having the police actually call and tell, and we've had the house raided, but to actually have the call and say that that hasn't happened. So when I told John, he contacted his solicitor. Solicitor contacted the, they told him to contact Old Park Police Station. So the solicitor did and they denied that ever been out to the house. And I've read your submission to the police ombudsman. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you asked them a number of times to investigate and it actually took intervention from your own solicitor to get them to yeah. even review their decision not to investigate. But that was one of the, the issues that You'd received this call, and then the RUC denied ever, ever making that. What's your thoughts on that? Why would they do that? Exactly. You know, what was the purpose of that? Is it that they were doing their legal duty? Mm -hmm. But you know, that's all they were doing. Mm -hmm. Now you know, but we're not going to actually admit that that's legitimate. So who knows what mm -hmm. their reasoning for mm -hmm. that was? But it was suspicious. So when John had to leave your home, and it must have been hard, you were, you were a young woman mm -hmm. with, with two babies. Mm -hmm. It couldn't have been easy. It wasn't. What was he saying to you when he was leaving? Was he telling you, dear dear, I'm worried, I'm, I'm going to be no. murdered, I'm going to be killed? No, nothing like that, which was why I wasn't fully off. And I wish he had of, because then I would have been more aware of what was going on I would have maybe could have spoken to him and says well you know what what is this worth it mm -hmm. um but no it was just um I'm not staying or and I didn't know where he was staying I had no idea where he was for weeks and in fact you probably only found out most of what was going on after yeah. his murder mm -hmm. so the week of March the 5th 1996 He'd been home, then he left again. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have any idea that he was in Donegal? I did, I did. Um, he had been, he stayed in the house that weekend. And that was very tense. It was a very tense weekend. We did fall out and we did argue. And I stormed out. But um, he, on the Sunday evening, he had said to me that he was going to meet Brendan Anderson for to do a statement. And who's Brandon? He was a journalist with the Irish News, and that's a journalist they would have used. Okay. And he was meeting Q to make up this statement so that they could Q speak Charlie. to Brenton Anderson about it, yeah. yeah. And um, that he was going to Bundorn and he was to meet somebody else there who was going to give him some money because he, no, nobody had any money. And he said, I hope this wee shite's there. And I said to him, well... Do you want me to phone up and find out? I'll go around and find Because I could feel the tension, so I was tense too. I said, I'll, I'll go around the corner and phone up and find out, make sure he's going to be. And he says, no, nah, no, nah, I'll be okay. And these are people from Belfast yeah. connected to the INLA? Yeah. Okay. Um, this was a wee guy who was very much seemed to be supportive of John. And um, he says, nah, just leave it. It'll be grand, it'll be grand. And then the next morning he phoned for a taxi to take him down to the Europa bus station. And that would have been around about 8 o'clock, I'd say, maybe 9 o'clock. And according to the submission to the, the police ombudsman from your solicitor, uh, on the day of the murder, John had met with someone, again connected to INLA, and spent the afternoon socialising in a number of pubs in Bundorn. At approximately 9.30pm, Mr. Fennell and that individual entered the railway bar in Bundorn. A week or so later, when Deirdre travelled to Bundorn to collect John's personal effects, the barman of the railway bar told her that on the night of Mr. Fennell's murder, that that individual he was with, 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. John told the barman that John was going to kill him. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that to be true? Um, I do, yeah. Because this person who's now deceased. Oh, no, that's sorry. He's not. The person who was with John, um, I'm thinking of another person, he was well known to the barman and he made a couple of phone calls to the rock bar in Belfast to his brother. Right. And that was... From that bar? From that bar. Because he asked, could he use the phone? Um... To tell them who who was there, who was drinking in the bar. It says here, Deirdre, that John and that individual remained in the bar to around 11.40pm that night. The owner of the bar recalls a knock at the bar door at closing time. And it was the brother of that individual who John had been with. And he was wearing some sort of wig in disguise, but the owner of the bar recognised him. John was later seen around midnight in the main street checking the bus timetables. It is unclear as to how or under what circumstances or whether he was alone. But John then returned to the caravan of the individual he had been drinking in the bar with. And it was there that he was brutally murdered. And when I say brutally, it was brutal. Mm -hmm. At least two dozen times a brick was dropped on his Mm -hmm. head, Mm -hmm. according to the information in this report. His body 
wasn't found until 2pm the next day in that caravan park. There are a number of people believed to have been involved mm -hmm. in John's murder. Approximately 200 people were interviewed. 30 DNA profiles were taken from the scene, including, unbelievably, from a Garda officer who had been collecting exhibits without any gloves on. Mm -hmm. Five people were arrested and interviewed. At least one of those was withdrawn on the day of the murder. In 2013, Gurdy agreed to review its investigation, but this basically didn't amount to much. No. In a nutshell, Deirdre, how do you feel the Gurdy investigated John's murder? They didn't. And <laughs> why? Why do you feel that way? Because their attitude was basically, as you said at the beginning, some people would say, if you live by the sword, you die by it. I think that fact that it happened in a, a small seaside town at that time um, and the lack of training of the local guards um, was a lot to do with the hampering of the the actual murder site but um, there could have been it could have been stopped as far as I'm aware I believe when I found out that John had died, I had to go and find out on my own, but I received a phone call. And that day, that Tuesday, I had, I didn't go into work. I wasn't feeling well. Or that Monday, sorry. And um, we were putting the house up for sale. So I went out and painted the gates. And I remember it clearly that there was a, a Jeep sitting at the top of the street. And I remember thinking to myself, there's a lone Jeep sitting at the top of the street. That's not normal. You don't normally see that. Normally when you see them, they've got, you know, two Brit Jeeps with them. And it sat there for ages. You know, I might paint these gates, so it takes a while. Um, and then it was there later on. And then that night when I got the phone call at around about nine o'clock asking, was John there? I said, no. And they said, uh, well, I said, no, he's supposed to be with you. And they said, no. Uh, have you have you seen the news? And I said no. And he said, "Look up teletext." And I put the phone then put the phone down, and I looked up teletext, and it just gave this the body of a man in his twenties has been found in a caravan park in Bundoran, and I really went into sheer shock and panic then, trying to find the number of Bundoran police station. Um, and that's how you found out your fiance. That's how I found out. Murdered. But the minute it was, the guard said to me, "Could you come down and identify your friend?" And I said yes, and put the phone down. A police jeep had pulled up outside our house and shone the spotlight through the front window. Second, I found out, and I opened the blinds and looked at them. They sat there for a few about ten seconds with the light shining in. And then drove off. So they'd been listening to phone calls. They were aware of what the comings and goings. They were aware that John was going to Europa bus station. So what else were they aware of? So the RUC could easily have stopped the car that was on its way down to John because they would have known. I, I believe there, you know, it's been riddled with informers. I, I firmly believe that um, John's death and the death of the people who were the leadership of the NLA at the time was there, they were to be taken out so that um, British security forces or whoever could keep and control, take control of anything that was going on because there was going, an IRA ceasefire, there, there was going, they were going to stand back and stand down. So how else could they have found out what was going on? And the fact that the guards, I don't think they were too much involved in the politics. But I do feel that the guards just couldn't have been bothered because it was a northern thing and therefore with the mess up didn't bother. And obviously they have been talking to RUC and maybe RUC have just said we'll deal with it. You know, back in the early days, don't, that's, 
or you know there, there's nothing we can tell you other than when was it finally confirmed to you Deirdre that it was John who had been murdered um just after I'd had confirmation from the guards to go down um I phoned John's brother who had only left the house him and um his wife about half an hour beforehand and I phoned him and I said I think John's dead and within half an hour the house was packed with people, people I didn't even know. Um, and I phoned my mum and dad, and if you think my mum and dad came up, and I was disbelieving of it. I was going, no, no, it can't be, it can't be. And they says, well, Deirdre, phone your solicitor, or phone John's solicitor and get them to phone the guards. So uh, I phoned the solicitor and asked, would you find out? So it must have been around about two o'clock in the morning at this stage, because remember, no mobile phones or anything like that. Um, that the solicitor phone back and says, yes. And can you remember? I remember the phone being grabbed off me and my mum grabbing me and hugging me. And I'm thinking, no, no. And then, and everybody was kind of turning away and the place had gone silent. Because it was all women. It was all yeah. women in the house. All the men had gone. Mm -hmm. And it was just crammed with women. So everybody was, you know, putting their heads down and, some people start praying and because there were so many in the house and it's not, there weren't big houses to start off with. Mm -hmm. And then it was after that, everybody left. And um, over the coming days, I was told through the arrangements for funerals that the coffin wouldn't be allowed to be opened. And then I started to think it's not him. The pretending. This is all a big a big this is a he's really gone to France this is bigger than my, because I didn't really know what was going on but I was convinced that no he wasn't so the morning of the funeral I said to the undertakers open that because I don't believe he's in there and if I don't see him I'm going to go through the rest of my life thinking he's, he's somewhere else in the world and so um, they did and it was a private viewing for myself and another person, but one person who I believe was involved in all the murders insisted in staying in too. And the lid of the coffin was taken off. Which I really didn't think it was appropriate for that person to be there, but in hindsight, and I think of this person and what they were doing, and it was who John was supposed to be meeting who didn't turn up with the money. Um because John was very disfigured, completely disfigured. And it was almost like as if this man wanted to see, you know, wanted to, you know. Know what he had been a part of. Yeah, wanted to, you know, wallow in it a bit, you know, he wanted to enjoy it. That must have been traumatising for you, Deirdre, to, to see it was, John like that. It was, it was, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. He was completely mutilated. Do you regret doing that or was it something that you had to do because you were in so much disbelief and shock? It was something I had to do and I don't regret it because it was still John, you know, and I kissed him goodbye, even though he was so mutilated um, because it was still him. And I think what it did do was it made me very angry. Made me very, very, very angry. Did you receive much support from any of John's fellow INLA members? Was there, I mean, no. I'm sure they were helping to look after you and, and the boys. Nobody would come near the house. They were all threatened and told not to. Everybody, people in the community were told to stay away from me or they would get the same as John got. People were pulled out of bars, guns put to their head, told to stay away. There wasn't a a, a do. You know, people wanted to have a do for to raise some money, to, as you would do for the family, for me and the kids. And the brothers had to say, no, it's okay, because there was threats that anybody who went to anything like that would be a target. And this was after John received a paramilitary funeral? Yeah. So they all showed up to the funeral, but then afterwards... No, some showed up. Right, okay. But there was conspicuous by their absence, let's say.
How was life for you in those months and years after losing John? They were extremely difficult because I lost my job. My employer never, ever contacted me again. Um, Was this because of John's paramilitary connections? Well, I have no idea. It was Queen's University. You need to ask them that. Um, There was only uh, family support, but that my own brother took his own life about five months after John died. So there was, a, you know, my own family were doing an awful lot of grieving too. So there, I knew from that point, I knew once my brother, at my brother's funeral thinking, and I was five stone nine at my brother's funeral. And uh, I remember thinking, right, you're on your own now. You just have to get the head down and do this. I hadn't, I mean... The house was John's, it wasn't mine, so I had to secure the roof over our head and I had no job and, and it was horrible. I never received a, an ounce of support of any employer from any jobs I went into. I wasn't really able to keep any jobs down. Um, and I, as for victims groups, I was turned away. I ended up going to work for one. Wave turned me away, said I wasn't suitable. And I went to work for one, but there were people in it who didn't like John. So therefore they didn't like me. And for years made life very difficult. And then I just left there. And uh, so, no, I've I've done this on my own. And with mostly the help of John's sister. She's just a sister to me. I'm glad that you had some support. But I mean, yeah. it just sounds like you had to struggle on, mm-hmm. Deirdre. When did you start to think about the justice side of things with John's investigation? Was it, I mean... Immediately. Immediately? Immediately. So you, you, you wanted it immediately? I mean, I've letters people from months after it. I mean, I was on to the guards. I mean, I went down to speak to the guards and to get John's stuff. I wanted his belongings and I went down on my own. And it was like a bit of a pilgrimage too. And I was asking questions and what have you. So uh, it's been from then, and that was when I was told to leave Bundoran and never come back. Went by locals. Wow! So that just makes me more made me more determined. How dare anybody treat me like that? Who is anybody to to say that to a grieving woman? You know, who's of no threat to them. But it was in the railway bar. <laughs> In 2014, the Gardaí had finished its review of their investigation and that basically came to absolutely nothing, Deirdre. Mm -hmm. And so you went down the route of asking the police ombudsman for Northern Ireland to investigate. And the reason that you did that was because of your belief that state agents may have been involved in John's murder. Mm -hmm. And so the police ombudsman had a jurisdiction to investigate that. So you made three complaints to the police ombudsman, the first in June 2014, again refused, October 2016 refused. And then after applying for a judicial review, the ombudsman said in 2018 it would review its decision not to investigate. And you haven't heard anything since, basically? No. Nothing. I haven't really expected to, to be honest with you, simply because there are so many ahead of me. There is practically since 2014, right across the board, nothing's happened. You know, the the Storm and Tice Agreement hasn't been implemented, nothing else has either. So there are so many families and so many claims and legacy regarding collusion. There's a lot more in front of me. But... um, so I don't really know what they expect, to be honest with you, what the outcome will ever be. Why do you believe that agents were involved in John's murder? Uh, simply because um, there was too much, too many things that went wrong that shouldn't have gone wrong. The one guy who was to meet John, I was always very suspicious of. This person would um, 
afterwards, you know, in other dealings with this person, we'd intentionally muck up. And then we'd say things like, oh, such and such is out there watching the house and be able, and then I would have information come back to me to say, you were seen doing this, that and the other. But it was really this person who was telling them because there was nobody outside the house. Um, I, after John died for a, few, a lot of months, I got a lot of um, malicious phone calls of how there was a breeze block with my name on it and how I was going to die as well. And, um, there were death threats and stuff, but there was a, a primetime program made and there were uh, people interviewed who had balaclavas on, who were GHQ, which would have been who, say, John would have been aligned with. And this person was tasked with getting stuff and everything he got, he messed up. And then he was told that I was... I. Father uh, Reynolds came to me and says, um, I've been told you're, uh, you were one of the people with the balaclavas on and that you're going to be shot. And I says, well, or that um, there was a veiled threat with that. And I said, well, Father, in the paper, it had said the two men and the woman who appeared with the balaclavas on were going to be assassinated because my mum and dad brought me up the paper and they were really worried. And I said, but I, I was not one of those people. I was there, but I was not one of those people. So somebody's, you know, going and giving information. Yeah. Um, like when Fra Shannon was shot dead, he was with this person and that person sent him. And Fra Shannon had nothing to do with anything. He was John's son. He was hot-headed and, you know, running around getting involved. And he was from a very, very early relationship. He sent that, he sent Fra Shannon out to get a toothbrush that night. Now, why would you send anybody if you're getting your hand? That was in Turf Lodge, where a lot of them lived. So there was a lot of suspicious things going on. There were people involved who had always been known to be informers. And on top of all that, in the Billy Wright inquiry, it was acknowledged that there were informers within the INLA. Yes, I'm just reading this here in, in your complaint to the Ombudsman, uh, written by your legal uh, representatives. In their report, the Billy Wright Inquiry set out that they had heard evidence that an MI5 witness had a relationship with a source for a number of years prior to 1997, who provided material across a range of subject areas, a significant amount of which related to the nature of the INLA slash Irish Republican Socialist Party, including reporting on a substantial number of individuals within the organisation. It also states here that approximately two weeks before Mr Fennell's murder, the RUC called out to his house and informed Deirdre Owens that there was a death threat to her fiancé's life. And we talked about that earlier. Yeah. They then denied that yeah. that had ever happened. It says here that it is plain from the report of the Billy Wright inquiry that there was information about a threat to an individual's life. The police were obliged to inform individuals and to deal appropriately with such a threat. There was an obvious and immediate threat to Mr Fennell's life and for reasons unknown to the complainant, the threat notice was issued and then denied by the RUC. From whatever angle you... From whatever angle you assess the RUC's behaviour in notifying Mr Fennell or taking steps to prevent his death, it is plain that the RUC did not fulfil its duty at all. Would that have made any difference, Deirdre, to, to John being protected or...? Well, it depends on what the RUC were prepared to share. Right. You know, um, at, there was always there's always been informers within the INLA. It's it's and uh, probably that's what the big problem with the organisation was. There's so many renegades, and you know you couldn't trust any of them. I certainly didn't. I, but you know you had the like of um, Skin Burns. He was shot dead for being an informer, and. Skim was a best friend of John's. He was very much in our life. And even I, who knew nothing, noticed things that were very strange going on. So it could have um, 
I think John knew himself that there was death threats. That it was a, he was in a feud. He was mixed up in a feud, and he knew himself that he had to keep his his uh, own security. I think it was just the manner in which then the police denied it. That there was more on the police side going on. They knew more. They were receiving information, and like I say, there's quite a few um, who the dogs on the street would say is an informer state agent, you know, even to this day, but who would have been there that night? Do you, have you ever spoken to any of the people who have had fingers pointed at them for the murder of John after he passed away? No. Do you see them? I would, yes. So these people would walk past you in the street? Yes, or even in the town. remember one time walking past one of his Christmas shopping and that was, that was hard, you know, him and his wife. And I'm, you know, down getting stuff for my kids on my own and this person's walking about nice as you like and who I would deem to be an informer as well. Do you think there'll ever be justice for John? No. I don't think anybody, there won't be justice in the way that we see justice and the way that we know justice as through the courts and that. But sometimes, um, sometimes that isn't always the type of justice that you get. You know, people talk about karma and things like that. Um, I say that things will happen in other ways. Names will be known if, and things will come out. I think for me, it's about the people knowing who the agents are. And that's about as much, because if anybody goes to jail, it's for what, two years? You know, mm-hmm. so um, I don't see there being a court case for John's murder. Does that make you sad? It does, because I'm kind of numb to it. I'm kind of not holding any feelings on that at all. Um, because we need to keep peace and we also need to move on as a society and if we're not going to do it for ourselves as much let us do it for generations that come behind us and I think the way many people are behaving today and in victims groups especially where they keep drumming up this hatred of the past and this sectarianism that goes on and it's just feeding this hate and everybody's entitled to justice and everybody's entitled to their day in court. But sometimes you just have to say to yourself, what will that do for me? And what is the greater thing that will come out of it? For me, vindication will be that there were informers involved. And so that those people who hero worship at the moment those growing men and women who should know better than to hear or worship anybody will take a look at themselves and uh, ask themselves a few questions and be ashamed of themselves. I want them to feel shame. There's nothing worse. And that that is something that you are going to continue to push legally yeah. through uh, your solicitor, KRW. Yeah. It's not something you're prepared to give up on no. then. Easily. No. Your two sons have had to grow up without a father. And we've talked about your sons privately. They seem like two lovely young men. Yep. No sectarianism. No. No political beliefs. No. I mean, they must be sad that they never got to, to meet their daddy yeah. or, or be able to remember their daddy. Yeah, they you do over the years, you know, especially when they were wee boys and you were on holidays and you would see daddies playing with kids in the pool and they'd be sitting watching them. You you would sort of wonder what's going on in their wee heads and that would be quite sad. But um, I think that the three of us have such a strong bond um, and they basically have never wanted for anything. I mean, John's family have always been there for them and, you know, they're, they are a massive part of his family. They attend weddings and things like that. We're still counted as being a part of everybody. But they, um, they've they gotten to know his memory and 
they support me in what I'm doing and they do get angry now and again, but I don't want it in any shape or form to stop them from living their lives. It never did. And it hasn't. Now, it's been a hard road as a lone parent, having no support from anywhere that I went to. All the doors I knocked on closed, especially within the victims groups, uh, which is why I do most of this on my own. But I find that empowering too. And... um the boys are angry. The boys are angry that these groups let them down too and that the state has let them down. But we, we're strong and we're resilient and now the two boys, they're in full-time jobs. They're, they've got hopes for their future. They're, you know, buying their first house and what have you. So we weren't going to ever let them pull us down. And they wanted to. They wanted to destroy my life as well. They wanted me either dead or destitute. And I have neither. And neither are my sons.